This is an ABC podcast. Koalas were transported all across Victoria and liberated. In what is probably, you know, one of the largest wildlife translocation events ever undertaken anyway. In a lot of ways, it's really Victoria's first and maybe Victoria's only really successful threatened species management program. Hello, Anne Jones with you with Off Track and another surprising dispatch from the natural world, or the sort of natural world. You see, there's not a part of the koala's range that hasn't been altered by humans. And there's a complicated backstory to almost every aspect of its situation. Now, Catalyst returns to Australian TV screens and iview from Tuesday the 16th of February with Tim Flannery taking up the story of koalas. But because of the COVID situation during filming last year, the crew couldn't visit Victoria. So I have, well, sort of. Peter Menkhorst and I had all sorts of technical difficulties, but we got on the computer to see if we could talk koalas. Peter Menkhorst, and I'm a researcher with the Victorian Government's Biodiversity Research Institute called the Arthur Ryler Institute for Environmental Research. Peter Menkhorst is more than that. He's a doyen of ecology and biodiversity, And he's been involved with koala management and research in Victoria for something like three decades. He's also spent time looking back into the past, to early colonisation, to see what he could find about koalas then. There are actually remarkably few references to koalas in the accounts by early settlers of their lives. People talk about kangaroos and emus and dingoes, but they rarely mention koalas, so it's possible that the koala was relatively uncommon in the mid-19th century when uh, Victoria was being colonised by Europeans. The colonisation of this country by Europeans was one of the biggest disruptions to Australia's ecological history. It knocked everything out of whack. Later in the 19th century, the number of reports of koalas increases quite dramatically so that by the late 1800s, there are far more mentions of koalas in the historical literature. And it's thought that, well, there may be a couple of things operating here, but probably there was fairly high predation on koalas originally by both uh, indigenous people and dingoes. And after European settlement, indigenous populations collapsed and they stopped their more traditional hunting. And the dingoes were persecuted mercilessly by the sheep graziers. So perhaps that predation level declined and then koala populations were able to increase such that by, you know, by say 1900, koalas were apparently fairly common and certainly quite widespread through Victoria. But by then, there was a lot of vegetation clearance happening. There were wildfires started by Europeans. Very likely in the early 1900s, there was the introduction of a novel disease, chlamydia, which uh, affects the fertility of female koalas. 
And importantly, there was the beginning of a fur trade in koala skins. Koala fur is dense and long, particularly our southern koalas, and uh, was very highly regarded for making gloves and hats and so on, such that literally millions of koalas were shot in Australia for their fur and um, exported to Britain, Europe and the US. There was then this uh, big population crash. By 1920, the Fisheries and Game Department at the time was really concerned the koala was disappearing from Victoria. What was to be done? Also, this is the moment where Peter and I had to resort to using a phone. So sorry about that. There was a gentleman called Fred Lewis who was the Chief Inspector of Fisheries and Game. He was quite concerned about koalas and he initiated what was really uh, maybe the first citizen science project in some ways. He wrote to all the rural schools and quite a lot of rural workplaces such as sawmills and just asked if they knew of koalas in their district. And then he uh, collated all that information and concluded that koalas had indeed disappeared from much of Victoria and there were probably only remnant populations in the far southwest, in South Gippsland and uh, probably in far east Gippsland. The funny thing was, though, that late in the 1800s, some colonists had got up to some shenanigans with the koalas. They'd started moving them around the state including to islands like Phillip Island and French Island. And the story goes that a gentleman from South Gippsland was wooing a young woman who lived on French Island and he thought that a present of a few koalas might impress her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, apparently someone uh, took a few koalas across to Phillip Island as well. And both those populations flourished. So that was in the late 1890s, early 1900s. And by about 1924, people on French Island began to complain about the numbers of koalas and that they were killing trees that they'd planted around their houses. Those two things kind of happened almost simultaneously, the indication that there were lots of koalas on French Island and the evidence that there'd been a severe decline on the mainland. And so they hatched this idea that French Island had acted as a safe haven or a refuge for koalas. And so they thought, well, why don't we put them on other islands? And uh, so that was done over the next 10 or so years. Koalas were introduced to Quail Island, which is just north of French Island in Western Port Bay and to Raymond Island and Snake Island and several other coastal islands in Victoria that had stands of coastal manigam. And that was very clearly an example of conservation marooning and a very early example of that practice, which you know is still being done today in islands off Western Australia and South Australia. And those maroonings led to high populations of koalas on these islands. The Quail Island introduction in particular turned into a bit of a disaster because that population grew very rapidly and completely stripped all the eucalypts on the island of their foliage and we had a mass koala starvation event. 
that was publicised in Wildlife magazine, which was a, a popular magazine at the time. We had some quite dramatic photos of dead koalas uh, scattered across the ground underneath dead eucalypts. And there was a, quite a huge public outcry at the time. This was in the early 1940s. And so the Fisheries and Wildlife Department then kind of reluctantly and begrudgingly initiated a what turned into a huge program of koala capture and relocation. Initially, they made safe havens on the mainland to put the koalas into. They created some fenced areas at Mount Alexander, which is near Castlemaine in central Victoria. They fenced off an area of Manningham Forest there and put koalas from island populations in. And um, that was seen as both a, a safe haven for koalas, but also as a potential tourist attraction to the area. And the RACV was involved in promoting that project. Great idea, right? Except that koalas are fantastic escape artists and Peter says that he thinks that they didn't like the hill the fenced area was on, so they legged it. Tourist visiting would often complain that they didn't see any koalas at all. And it didn't solve the problem of the ever-growing island populations with dwindling suitable habitat. And then they just had so many koalas that they decided, okay. We'll put koalas wherever we think they were originally occurring and, um, you know, any areas that we think will support a koala population. In 1944, they removed 1,300 koalas from Quail Island alone. And they were also still taking koalas off French Island and Phillip Island. So this is shortly after the war in a period when I think there were still things like fuel shortages. So it was a really massive program for the time. Koalas were transported all across Victoria and liberated in what is probably one of the largest wildlife translocation events ever undertaken anyway. And through that process, which continued from the 1940s right through to the early 1980s, really, many tens of thousands of koalas were translocated to more than 250 localities in Victoria. And in that way... Pretty well all the koala habitat in the state was repopulated with koalas. In a lot of ways, it's really Victoria's first and maybe Victoria's only successful threatened species management program. Almost all the koalas that are now on mainland Victoria have come from this program of translocation. That, in turn, was a result of these accidental island arcs. But what was the experience like for a koala travelling in the 1940s? Well, it was, yeah, it was pretty basic. Uh, we've got some historic photographs showing the capture teams. They used the, the rope and noose method, which is what we still use today mostly. And then after capture, they were put into hessian bags and then taken to the jetty transferred into wooden crates and those crates were loaded onto fishing boats to transport them across Western Port Bay to the mainland and then they were put into vehicles off on utes, stacked high with crates and uh, they drove off on a quite a long journey. So it was quite an arduous process for the, for the animals um, but enough of them survived to um, 
result in flourishing populations in most cases. In one of your papers, there was that picture where they'd released the koalas and there was like four or five koalas going up one tree. Yes, but, uh, we, we don't do that today. That's uh, quite uh, undesirable, really, because koalas are quite uh, solitary animals and males in particular don't tolerate another animal close by if they can avoid it. The other thing about that particular photo, I think I know the one you're referring to, is um, is that it depicts a huge mountain grey gum in the Otway Ranges in wet forest. Uh, and those koalas came from French Island where the eucalypts are probably no more than about 10 metres high and they're spindly little coastal manigans. And, and those poor animals, which have probably not been more than 10 metres above ground, were put on with these huge wet forest trees that are more like 40 metres tall where they're just a straight trunk, straight barrel that they had to climb up to get to the canopy, which is you know, probably 20 metres above ground before it even starts. So, yeah, it must have been a huge shock for those poor animals. And all this moving koalas here and there around the countryside has some big potential problems. The downside, of course, is that all these island populations had a very small founder base. So, the, for example, the French island group of animals probably all derive from uh, three females. And we don't exactly know the number of males, but looking at mitochondrial DNA indicates that there were probably three females to begin with. So they're all very closely related and have a level of inbreeding that's undesirable. Yeah, the word sounder in population biology refers to an individual animal with its with its genotype that contributes to subsequent generations. So if you've only got a few animals to begin with, you only have a tiny fraction of the potential genetic diversity that would have been in the, the wider population at the time when a few animals were captured by that gentleman from French Island, or he was just selecting randomly a couple of individuals and a tiny proportion of the total genetic diversity that would have been in the mainland population at the time. And he, he then isolated those few animals and bred from them. So he only, you know, that was what we call a genetic bottleneck where you're only dealing with a small proportion of the potential genetic variation. So that puts you at a disadvantage immediately because you don't necessarily have the ability to adapt to changing environments or to be able to survive new diseases or things like that. You've just got this adaptive capacity. Have you seen any impacts of this genetic bottleneck there are deformities in some individuals that are probably related to inbreeding testicular aplasia. So it's probably an unusually high proportion of males may have one or no testicles. And uh, some individuals have issues with their jaws where the upper and lower jaws don't meet properly. But nevertheless, populations have flourished. Victoria now has a very large number of koalas far more than New South Wales or Queensland. 
what is it about their reproduction that allows for their populations to grow so substantially easily? Uh, well, koalas are quite long-lived. Females can have one young every year for in Victoria for eight to ten years. There's almost no predation on them. Their survivorship is high, and so their reproductive potential is really quite enormous. And populations in Victoria can double in every few years, especially populations that are not exposed to chlamydia disease. And that's an interesting point. The koalas on French Island, rather than any of the other islands, were chlamydia-free. Peter says he thinks it might have been just happen chance again that the bloke selected sub-juvenile females to take out onto the island. They weren't yet exposed to the virus. But French Island had the smallest founder population as well. So strong in one area, weak in another. But even with chlamydia present in populations, koalas in Victoria seem to be able to continue to reproduce relatively quickly. And that in turn produces a difficult management quandary for Peter Menkhorst. Overbrowsing is simply where koalas are so attracted to individual trees, either an individual species in a location or even an individual, literally an individual tree, that they just sit in that tree and eat all the and eat and eat until they've eaten all the leaves off the tree. And then they have to leave that tree, obviously, and hopefully the tree can re-sprout. But if that happens too often, it just uses up the energy stores and eventually the tree dies. And in places in Victoria, literally in whole forest stands have been killed by that process, notably at Cape Otway, where um, if you drive down the tourist road to the Cape Otway lighthouse, you're just driving through this dead forest. That's all um, been done by koalas. What is it that's keeping the koalas on those trees? Is it their picky preferences or is it an inability to disperse to other areas? No, I think it's just their, uh, their choice to keep eating those particular individual trees. There's many cases where there's no barrier for them to move. Uh, like the, the Cape Otway example I gave, which is those Manigan stands, which are now basically dead, uh, surrounded by forest in which there are koalas living, but just at much lower density. For whatever reasons, they just sort of insist on uh, eating particular trees until those trees are dead. This creates for you, as the person leading the management of koalas in Victoria, a pretty complicated situation to have to deal with because you're not just talking about the conservation of koalas, you're talking about the conservation of the eucalypt species and the landscape. That's right, and all the other uh, flora and fauna that depend on those eucalypts. And now, almost all of the koala suitable habitat in Victoria is saturated and translocating the problem to another area just isn't an option. We've undertaken a series of trials since some early 1990s. And in Victoria, we've mostly pursued contraception using hormonal implants of a chemical called levonorgestrel. So it comes in the form of a little silicon tube and that tube is inserted just subdermally between the shoulder blades of the female koala. 
and that contraceptive um, works really well and prevents conception for at least six years and up to 10 years for that female. So that's pretty much the reproductive life of the female. So we've used those implants at four or five different sites across Victoria now, most notably at Budge Bim National Park in the southwest, where there was a population of about 11,000 koalas. And through a, a really concerted capture and contraception program uh, that's gone on for about 10 years, that population has been reduced and held at a lower level reasonably successfully. But, um, but it's required a massive effort and we've had trouble because of immigration of new koalas from surrounding landscapes into the national park and they're, they're of course not contracepted so to actually bring down the, the population requires at least a program over at least five years probably much more than that and you need to have around about 60 to 70 percent of females in the population contracepted to in order to get the downturn in the population number so that's a lot of work to capture those animals and have vets on hand to administer the contraception and to monitor the animals uh, before they're put back in the tree. Uh, it's a huge program. And an expensive one. Peter has written that the koala management budget takes up a significant portion, his words, of the wildlife management budget for Victoria as a whole. So it's a complicated situation, especially when, in states further north, the koala is truly struggling. And it's not the case where the koalas from Victoria could be translocated further north. For a start, it would be unethical to put them in dangerous situations as individuals. And secondly, across the range of koalas from north to south, there's lots of differences physically, as over time the local populations have adapted to their respective environments. The ones from Victoria are much fluffier and much bigger. Nationally, under the Commonwealth legislation, they're listed as vulnerable in New South Wales and Queensland, and the populations in Victoria and South Australia are not listed as threatened. You could probably argue now that uh, they might, they perhaps ought to be at a higher level and vulnerable in New South Wales and Queensland. But the, the publicity around the decline of koalas in the northern states uh, is a real hindrance for us in Victoria uh, because. There's so much doom and gloom in the media about koalas that uh, we have real trouble getting across our side of the story. You know, and I think if koalas are going to be conserved, it'll it'll happen in the southern states. Um, there's certainly been dramatic decline in Queensland, and so you know, I think the long-term prognosis for koalas in Queensland is really bad. But it's probably better in the south, and uh, I think the southern populations are probably of greater importance now, and we've probably got a better chance of conserving koalas in Victoria than we do in the north. And it'd be good if, if Victorian koalas got as much attention as the Queensland ones and the northern New South Wales ones get. In Victoria, we're focused on managing the sites where there are too many koalas, but there are koalas across a very wide range in Victoria. Um, people at the Art Institute 
uh, just last year, did some modelling of koala count data and koala distribution to try and uh, get an estimate for the number of koalas in Victoria. And, you know, we think there are probably 400,000. And although the, the translocation program has certainly been a huge success on some levels, it's also created some potential problems for us in the future through that genetic bottlenecking process. With an animal whose range is as large as the koala and who likes to live in the same sorts of places that we do, it's never going to be simple. Peter Menkhorst is with the Arthur Riley Institute in Victoria. I'm Ann Jones and you've been listening to Off Track. Remember to charge up the headlamps and pack a snack because next time I'll be taking you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.